0: If you're only defined in terms of your sexuality, then you're not multidimensional, and that's also the message being given to women.
1: You're listening to Good Is In The Details, the podcast where we invite experts onto the show to talk about the ideas that drive their work. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and co-hosting with me is the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. Our discussion today is about the media, specifically how women are portrayed in the media. Our guest is University of Iowa professor of the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, author of The Lolita Effect, Dr. Gigi Durham. I first became familiar with her work because she was featured in the documentary Misrepresentation. And Gigi is going to talk about the research for her book, how Young girls in particular are hypersexualized in the media, how we can analyze it, and also how parents can handle the images of young girls when their children are consuming media. Before we get started, I just want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed the show. If you would like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, now let's talk media and women. Gigi, welcome to the show. This book, The Lolita Effect, what is the origin of the idea for this book? Was there something in your studies or in your thinking and you're like, this deserves a book? Or did it start out as a paper and you thought, wow, there is a lot here I want to dive into?
0: Yeah. So so actually it happened a really long time ago. I mean, as, as I mentioned, I have two daughters, but, and people often ask me if, if that was what actually precipitated my interest in girls and sexuality in the media. But I started working on this, like, years before I even had children it kind of began in graduate school I was working with the sexual assault recovery service on campus at the University of Florida and it was one of the very few services like that in the country at the time uh, now you know now they're on every campus but they weren't at that time and so I began thinking about whether you know whether the media played a role in the sort of epidemic levels of violence against women that we were seeing, even then, and that we continue to see. And so I started investigating, you know, just kind of looking into how the media were portraying women's sexuality. And I started off by looking at women's magazines at popular media of the time uh, directed at adult women. So I was looking at things like Cosmopolitan and Glamour and stuff. And I could see there that, you know, there was such a a limited and sort of regressive uh, portrayal of women's sexuality, you know, it was very much about conforming to certain types of certain body types. And, you know, always like 50 ways to please your man on Cosmo covers, you know, so it was all yeah, about sort of yeah. women changing themselves in order to please some male concept of sexuality. And, and so I wrote, I did write some papers on that, I was publishing in that area. And then kind of in the mid-90s, a whole spate of books came out about girls, about adolescent girls, including Mary Piper's Reviving Ophelia, which is really a wonderful look at how adolescence precipitates crises for girls, but not for boys. And Peggy Orenstein's School Girls that was showing, you know, sort of girls, the sort of um, diminishment of uh, academic accomplishment that happens around adolescence. And, you know, uh, some of Lynn Michael Brown's work, And so all these books suddenly came out that were talking about how girls were experiencing these crises in adolescence. And so I began, again, I got interested in, well, what were media aimed at teenage girls and preteen girls, how were they constructing sexuality? I did some analyses of Seventeen and YM and, you know, some of those kinds of fashion and beauty magazines that were aimed at girls. And if anything, it was even worse. I mean, it was just like the adult magazines, very much focused on pleasing boys and conforming to certain types of very narrowly defined notions of beauty. And they were all full of advice about sort of how to how to comport yourself sexually, which was, you know, always a double-edged sword because you had to project, you know, sexiness while at the same time resisting men's advances. And, you know, it was just a really complicated, but ultimately problematic construction of sexuality. And then after I looked at that, I just, I began wondering how actual girls were navigating this. So I went into a middle school and I spent a long time doing field work with adolescent girls in middle school, because that seemed to be right around the time that all of these kinds of quote unquote crises happened. We also know that 13 is right when eating disorders spi- you know start to spike. And so I went and I you know, spent a lot, a lot of time with adolescent girls, talking to them about what they were watching and listening to and how they were kind of negotiating sexuality in their lives. And I was kind of expecting more resistance than I actually found, you know, I found that it was really affecting the way that they thought about themselves and the way they thought they had to, believe, to behave and, and their relationships and so on. And and all of that work kind of went into slowly to effect when I finally did decide that this needs a book.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of time and money that's put into the appearance and as you write, it's for the male gaze. What is the connection between violence and this notion of sexuality for girls?
0: Yeah, so I mean that's one of the things that really has troubled me a great deal um, because uh, you know it's very difficult to prove causality in these sorts of cases. But, um, there is some evidence that you know the objectification of girls' bodies contributes to a perception of them, you know, as um, sexually available. And there are extremely high rates of, you know, child sexual abuse. Right now, just the most recent statistics say that something like one in nine girls is sexually abused, according to RAIN data. And, you know, there are escalating rates of child pornography and escalating rates of dating violence. And so, you know, I think all of these things are really troubling. And again, you can't directly Link them to the media sexualization, but uh, the media s- sexualization is certainly you know again contributing to the notion of girls as sexual objects and then there there's the video game effect right and that 's something else that I do write about in the book where you know, often sort of female sexuality is kind of juxtaposed with violence in really troubling ways. And some, in some games, actually, women are the objects of violence. And, you know, so there are, there are a number of ways in which violence is portrayed as sexy in a yeah. number of these, you know, these representations. And that to me is a contributor to real world violence.
1: I think I was reading are you familiar with Jackson Katz's work yes. he wrote yeah the macho paradox and yes. something that really hit me in in one of his chapters was how in scary films that there are often you have this music when something suspenseful will happen and it's a woman in the shower so at the same time when you have this anticipation of something that's violent going to happen, you have the nude body of the woman. And I had never even thought about how often that is the case to kind of mix up these ideas of a nude woman and the excitement of anticipation of some sort of violence that's going to happen and how young men and young women are watching these ideas play out.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, cats, I mean, that's right. And he, it's, a, it's a real, it's a really common trope in, in horror movies, uh, not only nude women in the shower, but also often sexual scenes, you know, right, when, when young women are undressing, or, you know, there's some sort of scene like that, that's, you know, designed to create arousal in your average straight male. And right at that moment, that's when the murder happens. That's when the violence happens. And so yes, that sexuality and arousal and eroticism are so connected with violence in those films that they too sort of convey that. And that message The violence is sexy.
2: When you were talking about that um, line from Jackson Katz, and and just I have to admit I, I am a, a horror film junkie. I I started watching horror films when I was a little kid in order to try to control my own personal fears at the time because I grew up in the L.A. in the in the nineteen eighties and the Night Stalker was running around and he completely messed me up and so it ruined an entire summer. Certainly had some psychological damage and then and then I discovered horror films. And I felt like I had the power over the fear because I was able to turn off the horror films. And so I was trying to think of myself going back, you know, to then was what you're saying about the music and and when there was a shower scene. And I do know something that's kind of interesting about a lot of horror films. And a lot of the horror films in the 1980s, it, it was the females that would actually beat the killer. Right, yeah, like right. In a lot of the Friday the Thirteenth, it was the female that would beat him up or you know kill him for the umpteenth time in the end, and and that happened in Halloween and Scorpion Weaver and, and Alien. So it's just it, yes. it, it's 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 like yes, horror films. There are many 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 bad things about them, but they were one of the first genres that had the the female being the smarter, tougher protagonist while, while all the other men were morons and then got killed so like I, I know there's definitely a lot of bad things about horror films but you know I, in a strange way there's some good things about them too so right, right. That, yeah. that's what it was, was just going through my mind right it's uh,
0: complicated there's this final girl theory which is what you're talking about this is actually a theory in film studies that there's a final girl who vanquishes the killer and it was Jamie Lee Curtis in, in the Halloween movies and so uh, yeah that happens but at the same time they're complicated right there's a huge amount of literature on horror movies, the cathartic effects, the effects of being in control when you're afraid. But there is also this other theme of the sexualization of violence. And I think we can see that all of this happens and that like any text, most texts, there's perhaps regressive and progressive aspects.
2: It ties into your book, In the Lolita Effect, is that um, finding that middle ground, right? A lot of the conversation is... Well, if we're asking these questions, we're saying the sexualizations of little girls is bad. Then you're against sex. No, that's not what we're saying. Oh, so you're for sex. No, that's not what we're saying. So it's it's complicated, right? It's complicated. There, there is there is no clear. It's much like a philosophy class. There really aren't. No Whatever.
0: Really. <laughs> we try to, we're
2: trying to argue something and try to get to that <laughs> middle ground where we can see eye to eye, right? I mean, that's basically what it's about.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely not black or white, right? We, I mean, it's not just binary. We have to really think about all the complexities involved when we're thinking about sexuality and representation.
1: Something I thought was interesting in your book was you talk about the incongruity of sex education and then the sexualization of girls in the media. Could you expand on that? What is going on with sex ed in America and how does that contrast with the images that we see that and what what should a young girl be you know understanding you get one thing from sex ed and then the other thing from the magazines
0: right right so so actually there was literature to show that children in general depend on the media for uh, their sexual learning you know they trust the media for sexual information far beyond the trusting teachers or parents or even peers so and that that to me is sort of troubling right there because the way the media constructs sexuality is driven by factors other than the well-being of the child to begin with. Um, But then you bring up sex ed and that's highly problematic too, especially in the U.S. Our version of sex education is extremely inadequate. And as a result, we have really high rates of teen pregnancies, teen STIs, much higher than most other industrialized countries, you know, something like four times higher than the U.K. and France, eight times higher than Japan, you know, much higher than Scandinavia, where they have almost no teen pregnancies or STIs. Um, So we're not doing a very good job here in general of educating kids about sexuality. And part of it is when the Lolita Effect was written, it was sort of abstinence only. And things haven't changed a whole lot. Like kids are really not getting, you know, a really complex and informative picture of what sexuality involves about you know, for young women, about how to set boundaries, uh, for kids about how to get contraception. Like, there's a lot missing from the way that we approach sex. We don't deal with it as a sort of public health issue, or even, you know, a sort of very straightforward kind of developmental issue. There's a streak of puritanism in American culture, I think, that prevents, you know, our sex education from being as informative and useful as it should be.
2: I know some parents who are friends, let's just say they're Uh, Their views are puritanical in a way. But I know when in their school district up in Northern California started to do some sex education, it caused a big storm of fury um, Mm -hmm. where parents started taking kids out of the public schools, putting them into private schools. Their theory was... You know, we're the parents, we're the ones that's going to educate our kids about sex, not you. And that's obviously the American way, right? The American way here because of the, um, or the Puritans that were here first that had ripple effects through everything. And it's like, that seems to be one of those, one of those concepts of, nope, you school, you don't teach my kids about sex. That's my thing. Curious, you were mentioning a bunch of these other countries, mm-hmm. um, Europe and some Asian countries, what do they do better than we do? At what age do they, do they introduce sex ed and how do they do it? Is it within the parents realm or is it truly, you know, a part of the school curriculum? Because something that, that really struck me in your book, it was a quote from a teenager about, yeah, we, we, we sought out some sexual information on the media or here because we're too embarrassed to ask our parents about it. What I am trying to do, and we've we've done a couple of podcasts on this, is I'm trying to make it so you know my kids feel you know confident enough to talk to their parents, probably their mom because she's a doctor and she's just you know not as awkward as I am when the when the SDX uh, letters come up. <laughs> That's, uh, but but uh, but it's just curious, what do what do other countries do that may, that we can learn from?
0: Yeah, I think we should look, I mean, I'm not an expert on other countries' sex ed curricula, but I do know that they are, that they do have, you know, very good curricula, for example, in Scandinavian countries, and that they, as I said, they do treat it as sort of a public health, a health issue, so that the kids are given very straightforward information about, you know, what sexuality involves, um, uh, what the consequences might be. It's not just scary stuff about, you know, you could get an STI or you could get pregnant. It's beyond that, you know, it's just about, it's also very much about, you um, Owning it, um, learning how to set your own boundaries, you know, being very clear about when to when to begin sexual activity, what it involves, um, what the resources are, you know, where you can go to get information. The embarrassment that you're talking about isn't part of it. You know, it's just much more direct. So I think in general, kids are sort of uh, less afraid to make good decisions. I think that's the goal of it is, you know, cause that's what we all want. We want our children to make good decisions about their sexual lives, you know? So that would be a better framework to adopt, it seems to me, rather than treating it as something scary and terrible. <laughs>
2: <sighs> Talking about sex with your kids is scary and terrible for parents. I mean, that's just that's just the honest thing. And it shouldn't be, right? Because that, and maybe that's just for me, I'm, I'm sorry, but, If you've listened to any of the episodes, I'll tell you that uh, I I still haven't had the sex talk with my parents and I'm 43 and I'm still waiting for them to sit me down and and tell me what's what.
1: The the mental and emotional health, I think, needs to be included in the sex ed talk. And that's that's not really included. Or there's just the biological, you know, halfway explanation because it's not really the woman's body that's being explained or it's being partially explained. The male's body is being explained. And then... Yeah, but the the mental health or the fact that this could also be a physical, healthy activity, a way to connect, it just seems like it would cut back on so many, I can see how it would cut back on problems by talking about it, because if we explored it and how, you know, you could have emotional and health benefits from this engagement. Right mm-hmm. from this connection, mm-hmm. then when something is amiss, you don't want to participate in it anymore and you will know it. Like you will actually have the language to understand this is not how it's supposed to feel, this is not right you'll have the language.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, And of course, it should be developmentally appropriate, you know, when you're thinking about what age, you have to think about what children are capable of understanding and and so on. And and we have developmental psychology that could inform how we approach these things uh, in curricula or even at home. And then the other part, yes, it's really important what you're saying, because uh, again, going back to the issue of violence, you know, many more girls, I've forgotten the statistics right now, but many more girls uh, than men have had non consensual sex. And again, I think it's because, you know, they don't have enough information about, you know, how to think about does this feel right? Is this really what I want? Um, how do I express, you know, I want to go this far or no further? Like, it's complicated again, you know, it's not a simple question of yes or no. And so I think all of the aspects of it need to be sort of fully faced and talked about. Uh, without fear or shame. Right. Well, I
1: think one of the things that I think is interesting that media has done is that it makes a woman or a young, young woman strive for a type of power, a type of female empowerment. But the path toward that seems to be all, well, no, I shouldn't say all, seems to be highly sexualized, that that is the powerful woman. So how would you define what female empowerment is? And maybe where is media going wrong? Where are they leading us astray?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's. I think that's something that we do need to think about um, because, as you're saying, one very powerful bit of message to. Uh, girls and women is that you can achieve power through your sexuality, right? And and we do need to think about that, because I, on the one hand, uh, it's true that women's sexual agency has been in the past demonized, you know, that women you have know, been slut-shamed. Um, there's been a lot of denigration of women's sexuality, and I think we do need to move out of that framework and recognize women's sexuality as a positive and powerful force. That's real. But on the other hand, we really need to think about that. Like, how is that sexuality being defined and portrayed in our in our media and is it the only path to quote-unquote empowerment for women right and the representations of sexuality that we're seeing are again very restrictive and very narrowly defined right so you're seeing only a particular body type for example being you know vaunted as the path to sexuality which is very thin yet very voluptuous it's always a young woman you know it's Beyonce standing next to a sign that says feminism whatever it's not a range of different kinds of sexualities it's not a range of different um ways of experiencing sexuality it's still it's still confined to this particular type of like Barbie body. And Mm. it's still confined to flaunting your body, you know, as the as the path to some sort of social empowerment. And in general, you know, I think in many ways that's disempowering because we know that some of those kinds of images actually cause a lot of body shame, a lot of body dissatisfaction. They also lead to women spending inordinate amounts of time and money trying to achieve that particular type of body or that definition of sexuality, which, you know, as different scholars have argued, takes them out of the public sphere, right? So, you know, at a time when they could be, I don't know, like advancing their education, engaging with the community, you know, like doing volunteer work, running for office, they're in the gym trying to get that body, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, obsessed with, the body project. Then the other part of that is of course, if you're only defined in terms of your sexuality, then you're not multidimensional. And that's also the message being given to women that their your only path to empowerment is through achieving that particular type of sexuality. So you know, again, it's not about being, you know, a great scientist or a great writer or a great artist or, you know, all of these other pathways to success that women could have. It's always restricted to No, you've got to look like JLo or Beyonce in order to be powerful, right? Girls are buying into that message. And I find that to be very troubling as well. There was a study, a book in uh, Cecilia Baldwin, How the Media Shape Young Women's Perceptions of Self-Efficacy, Social Power and Class. It's an academic book, but she did interviews with adolescent girls who actually do regard those images of women who are depicted in sexualized poses and clothing and so on as powerful. They see them as more powerful than the images of, you know, women holding public office and things like that. So yeah, I think there are some real problems with that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, now that you're saying the poses, I mean, something that you wrote in here that really hit me was somebody asking about why is it that the images of women look the same in women's magazines and men's magazines? And a response to that is that because the woman is still always posing for the view of the man. Right. That and that has hit me so hard because now when I'm thinking about all of the poses, it is looking good in the picture or in the pose, is something that would seek out a man's approval of sexuality, mm-hmm. the way that the hip is, the way that the, you know, the bust is or whatnot. And that's why women look the same in men's magazines like a, a swimwear you know it's all posed the same or for yeah. women's um, you know underwear and bras if i need to go shopping for that i am looking at models who look like they could have come out of a man's magazine
0: right yeah no exactly there's always there's, it's a very insistently heterosexual dynamic for one thing you know there may be other people gazing you know it, it's true that these images are translated in different ways, and I'm not going to claim that uh, you know only heterosexual men are, are looking at these images or finding ple- pleasure in them. But they're certainly designed for the heterosexual male gaze. You know that is the audience in mind, and that's why yes, the you know the centerfold from you know a men's magazine looks exactly the same as a Victoria's Secret model looks exactly the same as the cover image on Cosmo looks exactly the same as the girls in Sabado Gigante or whatever. You know all they're all exactly the same. It's all the Barbie body. Yeah, so the implicit male gaze is at work in all of these kinds of representations that is, if you will, the target audience that the marketers have in mind. But I also think it does men a great disservice. You know, it's the assumption that men only are interested in that type of woman and that type of presentation of body. And I want to give men a little more credit for having sort of, you know, a range of, you know, a range of tastes and, uh, uh, you know, ways of being attracted to women for something more than whether or not they look like a Barbie. So, you know, I think it's it's unfair to everyone. Conversation. (laughs)
2: Yeah, for for the for the record, you can put me into that category. I, uh, I, I, if, if I if I'm such a nerd that if I can't talk to you, you know, about my nerdy things, then you're not going to find me attractive is basically what it comes down to. So, uh, yeah, conversation is is very very big uh, with me. Something that I'm struggling with as we're talking about this. It's so, and and I don't want to I, I don't want to pick on one. Family of media stars, and and I and I won't say their names spe- 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 specifically.
1: <laughs> I wonder I, I'm just I'm just
2: saying it's just it's so it's just like <laughs> I'm I still scratch my head about this family and how their you know collective net worth is in the billions now, and the reality is that was the vast majority of that was based upon sex and wearing little clothes and in riding the social media wave at the right time and how it can't just be men and put them there. I know many women that are kind of obsessed with them, watch their TV show, let their children watch their TV show, Mm follow them, like them on social media. I watched that and I'm like, well, that's that was all, I mean, it all started with a sex tape and it all, I mean, it, it, I mean, right. it was probably very planned out and they were smart about that perhaps and and, and look what they've done. And, and, oh, hey, hey mom and dad, what do you mean don't look at these people as role models? They have billions of dollars. Isn't the acquisition of billions of dollars and millions and billions of followers and influence, isn't that something that's important? Isn't that better than being in office or something along those lines? like, look, they're they're here, they're there. They have this home here and everything. And it's like so hard. Like, what do you say to that? At the same time, I will say this, their quote unquote body types are not Barbie, right? They are, you know, fuller bodied, women, you know, fuller body up. They're not blonde hair, skinny, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like, well, you know, at the same time, they've also shown that there is another look that men are attracted to exactly what you're saying. You know, not just the Barbie doll look, but I'd love to hear some thoughts about Your thoughts on that particular family without naming names.
0: There's a a huge marketing machine behind it, for sure. Um, And that, of course, accounts for a great deal of of its success. And you're right. I mean, it it does hinge on on sexuality, right? On the family members project a very... yeah I would say an insistent kind of heterosexuality, right, and I wouldn't say that they vary that much from from the sports Illustrated model, right? I mean, they do maybe a little bit, but you know they're still very toned, they're still the shiny long hair and they're young, and they're, they don't deviate that much from the sort of model
2: yeah uh, yeah, I, I guess it's because you know most of them don't have blonde hair and they have some Middle Eastern origin in them with a the you know bit. with the armenian aspect. I mean at least it's at least it's something at least it's a I mean, something a little bit different than what you normally saw in the 80s and 90s. Believe me, I'm not trying to give them any credit or, or <laughs> let them slide by. I'm just, tr- I'm trying to be fair in a way like, oh, are they all so terrible? Can I can I find something redeeming about them? I guess I'll focus a little bit on that.
1: You know what I thought was interesting was that when one family member, did something you know, going um started caring about justice, wanted to go to law school, and people were saying criticizing her. and I think that that's also interesting because it's as though everyone is saying you're not allowed. you had a sex tape. you mm-hmm. are beautiful. Mm-hmm. you are not allowed to exercise this other thing of what it means to be human. Yeah, again, it's it, putting her back into the box. I think
2: that was completely unfair, because I think, not to go down on a tangent, I, I think her heart was in the right place. That particular family member, I've, I've always respected the fact that she was very open about IVF and her struggles of getting mm-hmm. pregnant, and, and, and that, was, that was great messaging too, just having gone through that myself. Mm-hmm. so. Once again, you know, they're not all bad, but but, right. but focusing on the hypersexualization sexualization right, and, right. and what um, our kids see, I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on
0: that. Well, the hypersexualization was certainly their avenue to success, and I think we can't deny that. You know, all texts are complicated, right? All media images and messages are not, you know, you, again, you can't say they're all the way good, all the way bad. You know, there's often some redeeming features some progressive aspects of them, and also some really problematic aspects. And I think we have to look at the whole picture rather than categorizing things as all good or all bad. That's too simplistic and it doesn't get us anywhere. But in spite of, yes, some of the more complicating and um, more redeeming factors, perhaps, um, I think we do need to recognize that it was that they conformed to a certain dominant version or vision of what women's sexuality should be about. And the fact that their sexuality was sort of publicly defined through that sex tape, for example. And again, it conformed to this you know, heterosexual framework that we're used to seeing in terms of how women should be represented in the media, you know, all of those things contributed to it, you know, along with the, the, the fact that they had wealth to begin with, right? And so there are certain criteria that put them in a place that Americans certainly, and obviously they've had a great deal of global success that, you know, people tend to admire. When you
1: write that sexuality is a social construction, could you explain a little bit of what that means? Because I know that there is, or I'm wondering if you've had any experience of pushback with that, because I know that there are people who just want to make the case that women are naturally this and men are naturally that. So how do you make the case that sexuality is a social construct?
0: Well, in in various ways. I mean, first of all, I think if you're just any kind of um, alert observer, you'll see that there, you know, that not only is sex not binary, which people are recognizing more and more these days, there are a lot of people who identify as other than male or female in our sort of conventional binarisms. But also, you know, even within the categories of male and female, there are just a range of different ways in which people enact and embody and live those identities, right? I mean, there there are women who are athletic, there are women who defy the stereotypes in all sorts of different ways, you know, or who are, you know, they may present themselves as conventionally feminine, but they are also construction workers. And that's the same thing with men, right? There are men who might embody sort of stereotypical masculine image, the rock, but then there are men who are gentle, caring, nurturing people, men who are poets, men who are preschool teachers, men who are pediatricians, right? I mean, social workers. And so even within those fixed categories, there are so many different identities and experiences and backgrounds and ways of being that I think, you know, you sort of have to see this as so divergent that it can't be innate or essentialized in any particular way. Um and I think there are just so many different ways to think about how we learn about sexuality as well. I mean, I think there's good evidence to show that, for example, Judith Butler says gender is performative, right? I mean, and and people do learn to perform gender differently. Even from culture to culture, gender, people present themselves very differently in terms of how gender and gender identity are expressed. And so you know, just that, I think, can show you that it's not something inherent, that it is definitely, it is learned from your culture and your society, how you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to speak, walk. It's silly, but I mean, maybe it isn't, even the really superficial markers like hairstyles, or the way mm-hmm. you pitch your voice, or, you know, a lot of that is actually socially learned. And then one of the things I do when I teach gender and media is also look back historically, you know, because we go back to, I don't know, 16th century or something like that. You know, you think about men wearing high heels and velvet doublets and frills and lace, and that would not be considered masculine now, but it was certainly considered masculine then. And so you do learn from your society how to present yourself in terms of gender and sexuality as well. And people are expressing sexuality in so many different ways right now that I think we can see that it's constructed and it falls on a continuum and many, many different factors influence it.
1: I know. I'm so, I think I'm interested in the, in understanding why there's such a pushback because I'm, I'm with you. It seems to be so clear. I mean, even me studying philosophy, if I, you know, a hundred, a hundred years ago, that just, I don't, even know that I would be able to do that, it would be a completely different thing. It would be considered a very masculine thing. Um, Now it's not, I think it's still a masculine thing, but nobody looks at me and thinks that I'm masculine, but Mm a hundred years prior, it would have fit that. So, Mm -hmm. But I just think there's this anger about, like you said, non-binary, but there's this anger of like, there's just two genders. And that anger I don't get. Is it Is it because we're, is it a power shift? I mean, why, do you have any insight into that? Why do people want to resist the truth of social construction?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. I think it does uh, actually challenge a power structure that they're very comfortable with, right? A p- uh, sort of heteronormative and patriarchal power structure in which um, people have certain roles to play. And, and you know, it's very, I think it's safe and comfortable because, you know, you don't have to think too hard about the variations that might disrupt the social order in certain ways. So yeah, I think there's certainly fear behind it.
1: In the 1860s, John Stuart Mill wrote a book called On the Subjection of Women. I'm not sure if you're, familiar. yeah. And uh, um, one of the things that we go over in classes, one of his arguments to argue for legal equality was that the presupposition that women are naturally subordinate is flawed. And he's writing this in the 1860s. And his argument is still something I think you could use today, that the sexes have only been known in relation to each other. And scientifically, you could only tell what the nature of something is in isolation. But that since men and women have only been known in relation to each other, you could not assert what the nature of woman is. And therefore it cannot be the foundation for a law of legal subordination of course it still took what uh 50 years for women to be able to vote but you know he was already putting those ideas out there
0: sure and we're still struggling with a lot of it right with pay inequity and glass ceilings and all of it. But,
1: um, well, when you, were, when you were working on the Lolita Effect, um, what you set out to do, and then in the course of your research, was there anything that surprised you where you thought, I had an idea about this, but wow, now that I'm researching it and writing about it, this is a much bigger deal.
0: Well, I think the first thing that surprised me was when I did go into middle schools to work with girls, um, the amount of capitulation there was to these images, you know, how, how much the girls wanted to actually emulate these these mediated figures. And I mean, it wasn't consistent across the board. And what was really interesting to me was that I found a lot more resistance uh, among uh, African American and uh, Latina girls in, um, you know, sort of uh, less affluent communities because they seem to have more engagement with their, you know, their churches and their communities and things like that. And they were not sort of completely immersed in a media saturated environment. There were other cultural factors that were playing in, but it's still very, very, you know, much more, there was much less resistance to these images than I thought that there would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've
1: wrote this I think before the you know phenomenon that is Instagram and the influencer and the selfies what do you when you see all that what comes to your mind
0: what do you think yeah, so I think it's just reinforcing a lot of the, the scripts that I saw, the gender and the sexualized scripts that I saw in, in you know more conventional media. Like there are recent studies that show that sort of girls feel a lot of pressure to present themselves, for example, to show their bikini bodies in their social media feeds, and to and there's a lot of again you know the posing and the the, the ways in which um, they feel as though they need to present themselves is very very similar to the ways in which the media construct femininity and sexu- female sexuality. So I think it's actually intensifying and ampl- amplified in the social media environment. Although at the same time, I also think there are spaces for, you know, more spaces for resistance, critique, discussion. And one of the things I'm seeing, even with, you know, my younger daughter is still a teenager, she's 19, her sort of level of sophistication in terms of, you know, just terms like cisgender and, you know, just understanding, you know, sexuality on a continuum. And they actually are discussing things in ways that I find very hopeful. <laughs>
1: Did you ever see, uh, or did you happen to read Aziz Ansari's book on modern romance?
0: I haven't read it Yeah, um, but I do remember the whole Aziz Ansari, you know, sort of episode. Yeah, yeah right. There, <laughs> there
1: was, there's um, a section in there where he shows profile photos from dating sites. And I mm-hmm. show it to the students. And what is the difference between the woman and the male? And it's so funny because it, you know, at first they noticed the obvious is that the camera angle for the girls is normally up so that the girl is looking up to the camera. And then the guy is just like in the distance, looking off in the distance. And there's some, he's in nature or he's on some sort of a trip. For the woman, you never see her surroundings. It is really just her face looking up. And so we go into what is all going on there with that just with that photo, with that selfie. Just that the idea of what does it look like for a woman to be looking up to you, just having it from that angle. And then the men do not have to look like they care and they're also selling a lifestyle, right? They, it, it can't just be about them, but how bizarre it would be to flip those poses. And it seems like such a subtle thing. Like, it, you know, it takes a while for the students to notice the idea behind the pose. Cause at first the pose itself is obvious. When we think about, wait a minute, what is it that we're really selling? What is it that we're really trying to get at?
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. And also, again, something that's been normalized over years. You know, the sociologist Irving Goffman did a book called Gender Advertisements in 1972, where he noticed that, you know, men and women were posed very differently, that women were usually in subordinated positions, that, as you're saying, um, the camera angles were looking down on them or they were lying down. Or often they were sort of, you know, touching their faces, whereas men were standing on two feet, looking directly at the camera. Or, um, you know, again, the the backdrops were very different. So this has been going on over over years, and I think we're we're really accustomed to seeing women posed in that position and with with the camera angle putting them in the subordinate place. So.
1: Yeah. So what advice would you have for parents? Um, And I guess we should, I was going to say with daughters, but also with sons, because sons Mm -hmm. are being bombarded with this. This is affecting the way that they view women as well and what they understand sexuality to be. So what is some advice for the way that parents when their children are engaging with media or when they're starting to play dress up or act out? I mean, what are some things to look out for?
0: I think some of this critique can start quite early. Um, You know, with my own girls, when they were little, like even, because even the sort of the Disney heroines have the same Barbie body, right? If you look at Ariel or Jasmine or, you know, any of them, except for maybe Mulan, most of them conform to that exact same body type. And so I would, you know, sort of say things to them like, oh, wow, she's so skinny, her legs are so thin. Do you think a real person could stand up if they had legs that skinny, you know, and just kind of talk to them a little bit about them? And, you know, sometimes they would laugh and say, no, I don't think anybody could really be that skinny in your life or something like that. You know, just kind of talk to them a little bit about, or, you know, could that really, or do you notice, you know, um, gosh, you know, um, grandma doesn't, you know, or your aunt doesn't dress like that. Um, how come? You know, like, why do you, do you think people could really walk around in clothes like that? And I don't know, just kind of more of a discussion when they're little. Um, and, you know, what do you like? What do you not like about these characters, right? Like, Belle is great, because she reads books. And, you know, she's a strong person, but, you know, so and so doesn't have a body like that. And she's great, too, you know, like, whatever. And um, those kinds of discussions, I think as they move into the teen years, I think it's really important to keep lines of communication open, and just sort of think about what they're seeing, how they're seeing it, listen to them, offer your points of view, talk about your values. I think a lot of it is just sort of opening up these kinds of conversations about how sexuality is being presented. They're smart and a lot of girls are very critical, but no one's really given them the chance to be critical because you know, to bring up, for example, the family that we were talking about earlier, you're just flat out supposed to admire them. And if anybody says anything critical about them, I think there's a lot of backlash. Um, Just to open up spaces to be a little bit more discerning and to, to offer more of a critique in terms of, you know, what the range of roles are for women, why it is that you almost never see young girls being portrayed as scientists or environmental activists or Anything other than, you know, singers or models or actresses, why is it always the entertainment industries? Where are the other girls? Just those kinds of things. I think you can. I think it's important to just keep these conversations going. And you
2: have some high hopes now that we have a vice president-elect that's a female? I mean, do you think that the lack of women in those, in those higher offices in the United States, which hopefully is a thing of the past has had an effect on that kind of just like, oh, well, there's just entertainment. I mean, that's it. That's, that's, you know, if you want to have that, is this the right time to be like, look, you literally can do anything that you want. I mean, that's where I'm finding some hope. I'm just, I'm hoping that you find hope in that too. I do.
0: I do. I actually do think it's important. I mean, you can still sort of name them on the fingers of one hand, but you know, it is changing a little bit. And I think it is really important that we have vice president-elect Harris now and we can see a woman of color in an extraordinarily important and powerful position without, you know, being a Barbie doll. (laughs) So, um, you know. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I, I do feel... I, you know, I do hope that we can, you know, sort of see things moving in a more progressive direction there. I think you're right about boys, too, you know, getting back to the idea that boys are seeing these exact images of women. And I think the challenges are even greater for parents of boys to make sure that they, you know, grow up recognizing women as intelligent, thoughtful, complex, sensitive human beings, you know, people, in other words, and people that need to be treated with the same respect and kindness and thoughtfulness as anyone else. And as people who can be good friends, as people who can be good teammates, as people who can be coworkers. right? I mean, and that message really does need to to be gotten across to boys. It may even be more important to get that message across. why well, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is really important because as Jackson Katz points out, many of the issues that we deal with, like domestic violence, sexual assault, these are sort of, these are always identified as women's issues. But Jackson Katz says, no, they're actually men's issues. It's men who are perpetrating domestic violence. It's men who are, for the most part, rapists and sexual assailants. And so it's men who need to change their behavior on these particular issues and men who need to be more reflective about that. And they can, men can be allies and will be allies, are allies in the struggle. Well, thank you so much, Gigi. This was a lovely conversation. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
1: I'm really, I'm really, I, like I said, this was just an absolute joy because I, when I read your book, I mean, I did not think that I was going to have a podcast or have an opportunity to actually talk with you. And so (laughs) thank you so much for your time. And I'm looking forward to sharing this
0: with my students. Good. I hope they enjoy it. I hope it (laughs) promotes some great conversations in the classroom.
2: (laughs) As well, as well as our other audience members. We do have, uh, we do have other audience members as well, but you know, men, really, men, always and, thinking and about allies, everyone. and, and, and all, I'm the all marketer, the dudes. I'm the marketer aspect of this. Yes. And the dudes, they could join me as allies and trying to make things better, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's, so that's so the whole nice point of this. Too. For
1: sure. That's for sure. Cool. We'll wrap it up then. Thank that's you, Gigi. Yeah, Thank you. you. <laughs> nice to meet
2: you. Take have
1: care. Stay nice safe. Day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Gigi's work, I have links in the show notes. She has a book coming out in April that's going to be on media and rape culture. And if you have any questions about this show, you can get in touch on Instagram, GoodIsInTheDetailsPod, or email goodisindthedetailspod at gmail.com. And Rudy and I will be hosting an IG Live on February 2nd. That's a Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. Stop by, send a wave, comments, thoughts, all is welcome. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Okay, and until next time, bye.